All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I want to thank each of you for listening to this show and making this the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. I also want to thank our sponsors for making this show commercially viable. For the first hour of today's show... Today's three-hour show, I might add, our sponsors are Gold Bullion Development, Crocodile Gold, North Atlantic Resources, Cobre Resources, Brigus Gold, and Palangio Exploration. I would like to mention that uh, I am also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks, and my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Roger Wiegan, uh, who publishes Trader Tracks, and Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying?, what is Chen selling? And I expect both of those gentlemen, Chen will be with me momentarily, I believe, and Roger Wiegand at the end of today's three-hour show. We do have a special introductory offer for all three newsletters. Uh, you can go to miningstocks.com. That's www.miningstocks.com. Or call Claudio Bossi, my assistant here in our office in New York, uh, in Queens, New York. That number is 718-457-1426, 718 one four two six. But the best place to go to, the best website to go to now, for everything that I do and my partners do, is uh, J Taylor Media. That's J A Y Taylor Media dot com. It's without the triple W's. J Taylor Media dot com. There you can access this radio show. You can also access all three of our newsletters. Um, you can also catch the appearances that I do from time to time on CNBC, Fox, and BNN. And also, we are starting to post Face the Analyst videos. Those are videos that I do when I sit down opposite CEOs of companies to learn more about their, their companies and, and whether or not uh, they might offer you a chance to, to make some money in this bull market. And I, I believe this is the bull market of all bull markets for gold especially, but not just gold. There are some other metals too. Uh, and in fact, in just a few minutes, we're going to be talking to the CEO of a company called American Manganese. Uh, and that is a company that uh, has one of the largest, I guess the largest, manganese uh, deposits in North America at a time when manganese uh, is looking as if it's in short supply. Um, well, on the 23rd and the 24th, I did interview Larry Ray of American Manganese and 13 other companies, uh, the CEOs. So you can go to jtaylormedia.com to catch the interview I did with Larry Ray. Uh, also, Rye Patch Gold Corp, Dynacor Gold Mines, and the Vino Silver Mines. Uh, all four of those are posted now. The rest will be posted later. Um, now, three of those four companies are already recommendations in my newsletter. American Manganese, Rye Patch, and Dynacor are recommendations. Avena Silver and Gold could be. I haven't honestly had enough time to think about it yet. It may or may not make it into my list. Uh, but in any event, I um, want to say that, uh, well, I guess we actually have Larry Ray with us now. Larry, uh, Larry, are you there? Yes, I am. Mary Jay. Larry, wonderful to have you here. Um, I, I think that we want to start off by letting people, uh, j just perhaps uh, telling people about your company. Uh, the symbol, uh, you're trading uh, AMY on the Toronto Venture Exchange, uh, and it's over the counter, it's AMYZR, I believe it is. ZF. Uh, $0.58 cents, uh, today is what I saw it. Uh, tell our people a little bit about manganese. Why is manganese important uh, and then, then we'll get into the project that you have in Arizona. Well, if I could make, take the liberty of quoting uh, Brian Gilbertson, the CEO of Pallinghurst, and used to be the former CEO of BHP Billiton, 
His quote is, you can't make steel without manganese, and if you can't make steel, the world stops. It's a critical metal. And, uh, you know, we have a component of it. We have a value-enhanced product called electrolytic manganese metal that is totally dominated by China. All right. So, uh, and the Chinese have, as I understand it, recently uh, said that they will not be exporting that metal and a lot of other metals, I guess. Is that right? Well, they, they are still exporting electrolytic manganese metal. Uh, certainly, there's about uh, 300,000 tons of it that are consumed by the Western world, and they're totally dependent on China. There's only one other producer, and that's in South Africa, and they only produce 28,000 tons. So, But that is starting to tighten up. There's a 20% export duty on it. Uh, the Chinese costs are around a dollar a pound, uh, so that means they've got to get a dollar twenty FOB China. And uh, the current world price is a dollar fifty-six. Mm-hmm. They they're running out of uh, carbonate ores, so they're starting to look offshore. These are more expensive operations for electrolytic manganese, and I do see that the tightening is going to start happening. They've been telegraphing that by uh, uh, reporting in the news that they're running out of carbonate ore, and uh, they will be shutting down inefficient plants. So all these things if you remember, were the things that were uh, said before the rare earth quotas came on. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, it's a typical uh, strategy by the Chinese to telegraph what they're going to be doing. And we feel that we're in a very great position here. We have a uh, deposit in Arizona, which is uh, it's, uh, about 6.7 billion pounds of indicated and uh, 8.9 billion pounds of inferred. That is, in, you know, B is in billions, and the product sells in the U.S. at $1.80 a pound. Mm. Our cost is half the Chinese at $0.44 cents a pound. So, mm. you know, that's from our preliminary economic evaluation. Uh, it's, a, it's a bit dated. It's a little over a year old. And I expect that with inflation and everything else, that price will go up, but it will still make us the cheapest producer in the world. I would just like to take this opportunity to remind our listeners again that you can hear uh, and, and see a, a very comprehensive uh, interview with Larry at jtaylormedia.com. Larry, could you just tell us a, a little bit more about your your project? Uh, when do you think you can get it into production, the one in Arizona? And will you be the ones to produce? Are, are you equipped uh, uh, personnel-wise to move this forward uh, towards and then into production? Yes, we have experienced people on the personnel front that uh, can take this into production. Uh, the capital cost is quite low, Jay. We're looking at 3,500 tons a day, and the capital cost is less than $100 million. The uh, PIA is indicated that we paid back at a $1.10 base price uh, per pound at, in 1.7 years. At today's prices, that would be less than a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we have a track record for being able to raise uh, those those amounts of money, uh, you know, a couple, up to a couple hundred million. And uh, so we think this is a uh, standalone project, but it does not stop us from doing a, a strategic uh, relationship with, a, a, sorry, a, say, a steel company or aluminum company mm-hmm. or something like that. Sure. They could buy into the project. I mean, that would... Uh, that would guarantee them supply. And believe me, that's starting to get critical out there. Very interesting. Uh, I'm really delighted to, to know my engineers tell me that Chen Lin is with us now. Uh, Chen, would you have a question for Larry? Yes. Hi, Larry. Hi, Chen. Yeah. We basically, the, the key, the, this, the, this project from return on investment, from CapEx, is a no-brainer. All these uh, <laughs> people talking just basically two questions. One is how easy to get a permit there. Okay. And the second is, metallurgically, uh, what do you need to do to prove Oh, the process will be variable as uh, in the pre-feasibility study. Okay, I'll answer the uh, first question on the, the permits would be environmental permits. We have what we call a, uh, we consider a green process. So we have a dry tailings. There's nothing going into the atmosphere. There's nothing going into the environment. The dry tailings will be benign. Um, we certainly uh, are in a county that has high unemployment. Uh, we believe that uh, the permitting process should go through fairly fairly easily. Our footprint is small, only a few hectares uh, for the plant site and everything, and as I said, the tailings goes back. So you don't have this big footprint that you'll see on, on most operations. And the uh, second part of your question was... Uh, 
I think no, I did answer both those parts, didn't I? Or the metallurgy? Metal, oh, the metallurgy. Okay, yeah. we have we have taken the uh, we've done the uh, metallurgy. We've produced the electrolytic manganese metal, and we've produced the EMD on bench scale tests. We know that it works. The chemistry and the physics work. We're currently doing a larger scale test uh, that would be a continuous test, and that would let us scale up to the uh, for the uh, design of the uh, eventual operation. Now. We don't feel that we have any significant problems in that. We're giving a paper on it at the SME conference in Denver on March the 2nd, and uh, we've been encouraged to do so. So we feel that uh, that will enlighten a lot of people on the subject. We've had a lot of people investigate it. They see no flaws. So when, you, when you're looking at it, uh, we think that, uh, you know, for the front end of the whole thing, it was done years ago. It was developed by the U.S. Bureau of Mines, uh, during wartime at the Three Kids Mine in Henderson, Nevada. They operated that mine using the sulfurous acid leach, and, but they produced ore at that time, and they also had the calcine part of it, so that it was a little more expensive. At the same time, they developed an uh, electrolytic manganese product from the artillery peak on a uh, pilot plant basis, a few tons of material, which they shipped off to the uh, steel mills to use in place of sterile manganese. And it worked. It actually worked better than the ferro, but the electrolytic manganese price was higher than ferro, so it was just not a replacement item. And the, the ball got dropped after that. They developed this thing right out to the point that we could pick it up and uh, take uh, some of the loose ends that were trailing off into nowhere. You know, in the old days, you just dumped everything in a gulch. And uh, now it's a closed circuit. It's uh, energy efficient and uh, water efficient. Okay, I'm afraid we'll have to leave it there, uh, Larry and Chen. Um, we're just about out of time for this segment, but I'd like to remind our listeners they can go to J Taylor Media. That's without the triple W's. It's J A Y Taylor Media dot com to view the interview that I did with Larry Ray. I think this is a very interesting company. I know Chen has identified it as one that can do extremely well. It is a recommendation of mine. What I realized was that I forgot to tell you. What else is coming in today's show? Now, uh, our main guest today is Peter Grandich. He's going to be with me at about 3.30. Uh, our second main uh, guest is Miss Shedlack, a renowned deflationist. He's going to be with me at about 4.30. And coming right up uh, after the break right now, we, uh, we're going to have Mike Hoffman of Crocodile Gold with us. Mike's been with us before. Uh, he, is, uh, he is the president of, of an exciting growth company called Crocodile Gold Corp. in Australia. So we'll be right back with Mike Hoffman. Don't go away. You'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt, and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by. 
Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Brigus is also advancing its gold fields project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to Taylor at miningstocks.com. That's the letter J, Taylor, at miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Mike Hoffman, the president of Crocodile Gold Corp. Crocodile Gold Corp is a sponsor of this show. It is a recommendation in my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, and I own shares uh, in my retirement account of this uh, company as well. So we'll get those disclaimers out of the way. Welcome, Mike. Oh, thanks for having me again, Jay. Really good to have you. I understand that you just came back from a very wet, hot, and humid northern Australia. You've had uh, an awful lot of rain down there. It's made the news. I mean, rain. Let's say it's uh, torrential floods, really, that have really caused a huge amount of damage in Australia. Has that affected your operations at all, Mike? Yeah, it's um, it's a, known as a La Nina uh, year this year, so... Uh, uh, normally, the rainy season starts in October and goes through to March. And a normal rainy season, I was just looking at some of the weather data, um, from October to the end of January, normally we get about uh, 900 millimeters of rain, and this year we got 1.4 uh, meters of rain. So we almost got 54% more rain than we normally do. Mm. We actually have, we're getting more rain in the Northern Territory than Brisbane is, which is where you hear about all the flooding. We haven't really seen the flooding, but just... Steady uh, monsoonal rains, and uh, from our January press release, you did see that it, you know, affected production in the pit and uh, at, with mill throughput in December. And uh, we'll be uh, providing an update, um, I expect, in, within the next week. And it did affect January also. Um, uh. Fortunately, we stockpile ore at the mill going into the wet season, so we've been using a lot of that. Um, ironically, I was at the site for the last week and a half, and from the day I stepped on site. It was sunny almost every day, so uh, we actually got a chance to catch up a little bit on, uh, you know, getting the mill back to, to normal and getting the pits, uh, you know, producing a lot more ore. So, you know, the good news is that little break in the weather really helped at a very good time. And well, Mike, so this affects your open pit operations. Uh, are you mining underground there now? Yeah, we're mining underground at Brock's and developing at Cosmo, and it, it doesn't really affect the underground as much. It's just... Uh, mm-hmm. The real issue on the open pits is when you get the torrential monsoonal rains, uh, you can't really mine in the pit because it destroys all the roads. So yeah. when, you t- when we talk about, um, you know, some of these monsoonal rains, you know, it's not uncommon to get, you know, four to six inches of rain in a day. So, you know, some pretty horrendous rains. Can you talk a little bit about your production numbers for 2010, Mike? I know that you've come out with those. Uh, I guess maybe they fell a little bit short. Uh, partly because of the rain, but could you just talk a little bit about uh, your production for 2010? Yeah, we produced uh, 82,000 ounces in 2010. Now, our guidance was 85,000, and admittedly, we fell a little bit short. It was probably affected a couple thousand ounces in December uh, with mill throughput. We did mine some higher grade, which helped make up um, the difference a little bit. Um, But, you know, know, I felt for the first year of production, um, you know, it came in, you know, fairly decently. And you know, to be honest, I think with uh, this being an unusual weather year, we'll probably come out with guidance for 2011. We'll probably wait till late February 
uh, by then the bulk of the rainy season is behind us, and you know we we'd have a lot more confidence in forecasting uh, what will happen moving forward. Um, you know, companies such as Newcrest have already reduced guidance due to some of the rain. So, you know, rather than getting into this thing, we're stating something and then shortly after having to change it. Uh, I think we'd just rather try to get a number we're fairly confident of. Right. It certainly uh, it certainly is good to uh, to under under promise and over deliver if you can. It's not always easy to do. And how would you know you're going to have 50 percent more rain this year? Uh, Chan, have you got a question for Mike? Well, yeah, just. Uh, What's your plan for expansion? Uh, you mentioned you may uh, looking to build uh, another mill down the road. Yeah, Chen. Um, the big thing, uh, the big catalyst this year is is getting uh, uh, Cosmo into production. Um, you know, as you know, we should start uh, producing some ore from there, and uh, you know, we want to build up to full production. Um, when Cosmo is going at full production, that'll be a hundred thousand ounces a year just on its own, and. Before the year end, we also said that we were permitting um, uh, the uh, deposit at Pine Creek to bring into production, and that's located only 15 kilometers from the mill. Now, one of the developments, I guess, coming out of all this is that we're finding more sources of ore near the mill, which is reducing that trucking cost. And I think what it's allowing us to do is deferring that decision to build a new mill um, probably till later this year. Um, you know, I, I think the... Uh, you know, if we could produce, you know, more ounces uh, that are located closer to the present mill, it just allows us to make sure, you know, Cosmo's up at full production and, you know, we're producing a lot more excess cash flow and then look to try to fund any mill expansion or building a new mill from cash flow rather than having to go to the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike, could you give us a sense of what those trucking costs might be on a per ounce basis? Yeah, um, it ends up costing like the bulk of what we're transporting is about uh, eight fifty a t- eight to eight fifty a ton, which translates to about one hundred and twenty five dollars an ounce. Now, mm. one of the things that happens is the Cosmo ore, because it's higher grade, um, you've got about three times the the grade of the open pit ore, and ends up being thirty to forty dollars an ounce. So, it, mm-hmm. the trucking doesn't have as big an effect on Cosmo as it does some of the other open pit ore. So, essentially, we're we're going to be mining open pit ore closer to the mill. You know as much as possible moving forward so what uh longer term what are the uh, production goals if you could just tell our listeners that again mike if you would chen was just asking about uh in, you know building a mill you're just talking about the cosmos will give you a hundred thousand uh, pine creek uh, what does that produce and and just to give viewers a longer term perspective of what the target production levels are could you just go over that for our listeners yeah, again? sure um what we'd like to do is get up to um over 200,000 ounces a year. And, um, you know, just using the existing mill, um, if we produce ore at Cosmo, um, that'll produce 100,000 ounces a year on its own, and it'll produce about 40% of the mill feed with the bulk of it being produced from open pit. And that brings us pretty darn close to 200,000 ounces a year. Um, Another thing we'll be updating our our shareholders with over the next few months is... uh, we're looking to, uh, well, we have done started some drilling at the Union Reef area right adjacent to the existing mill, and some of these areas are higher grade, and if we could continue to substitute higher grade ore with the lower grade open pit ore, uh, we may even be able to go well beyond uh, the 200,000 ounces a year. So, And that's without looking at the new mill. If you get into building the new mill, you know, potentially you could get up to the 300,000 ounce a year run rate or beyond. Mike, I'm assuming the 200,000 ounce target or goal, if you will, is based pretty much on what you can see now based on exploration work so far. But one of the things that struck me when I first started looking at crocodile gold was an enormous amount of, let's say, um, uh, exploration potential, uh, large strike lengths of, of uh, you know, structure that would that may or may not be continuous, but uh, but have great promise for building ounces in the ground. Could you just take a couple of minutes uh, to talk about that, perhaps? Yeah, what we really find interesting, we've got 2,500 square kilometers of uh, property, um, you know, over 5 million ounces of uh, resources. And one of the things that's really hit us is, for the first time, all these properties have been amalgamated under one owner. Uh, the previous owners had put the property package together, and we've actually been adding resources by actually going through our file cabinets. 
Um, you know, part of it is just making sure all the old data has been updated onto our electronic database. You know, we've been reviewing uh, resource estimates, and you know, a good case was Pine Creek last year, where we took the uh, indicated resource from uh, 70,000 ounces to 290,000 ounces, and that was just making sure we updated all the information. So we're continuing to do that. That's a high priority for us. And one thing that really strikes us is everybody who visits the site, including analysts, um, fund managers, uh, some uh, geology consultants, they're all struck by how prospective the ground is and, you know, numerous gold occurrences, base metal occurrences, uranium occurrences. Um, we just have to have the focus of sort of starting at the highest priority targets first and then working our way down. Well, it certainly seems uh, as, as if, uh, Mike, as if you... Um uh, as if you have tremendous upside potential, and I'm I'm really uh, very very pleased about that. It's certainly one of the things I've sort of compared you with a company that I follow called Allied Nevada here in the U.S. in terms of production goals and, and long-term potential. And Allied Nevada has been a huge success for those folks who might be invested in Allied Nevada. Uh, I don't know if we've uh, Chen. Do you have any more questions? Uh, no, not at the moment. Thanks. Not at the moment. Uh, Mike, you have um, <clears throat> you talked to us a little bit about how, uh, I don't know if you've looked at this or not, but how does your company stack up relative to its peers in terms of market capitalization? Um, well, of course, I'm sure every company on your show, Jay, says they're undervalued. And, uh, of course, I'll, I'll continue that trend by saying the same thing. But uh, to be fair, you know, at the end of the day, we're we're still a new company. Um, you know, I think we still have to uh, prove ourselves to a certain extent. Um, last year was a very good start. Uh, I think the key this year is bringing, you know, Cosmo into production. And I think as, you know, especially Cosmo, when, when that comes into production, it's going to have the effect of increasing our overall uh, ounces produced and it'll help lower our cash costs. So that's once we start doing that, I think, uh, you know, our, our market capitalization and our stock price will increase. Um, you know, it's, you know, you know what it's like, it's, uh, you know, show me, right? You know, and, and we have to show, uh, you know, our investors and, and, you know, potential shareholders, uh, the promise that we believe we have and, you know, we have to deliver on it. Well, I thank you for that, Mike. You know, I, I think that that's right. I think where you make money in this market, uh, is in finding companies before the market understands how good they are. And, uh, I hope I've got this one right. I think I've got this one right. Uh, you have a great management team there, uh, you know, people with good experience. You've got great upside potential. Uh, and I think once you do start to produce according to uh, the expectations that I have, at least, that your share price will take care of itself. There's no doubt about that in my mind. Well, I want to thank you very much again, Mike, for coming on the show. We wish you the best and, and hope that we can talk to you again sometime uh, with, some, with some good numbers and uh, uh, some good earnings reports perhaps coming down the road. Thank you very much. Folks, don't go away because we're going to be right back with Peter Grandich, who will no doubt have some very, uh, very important things to tell you about his views of the market. Peter has had a very good track record in the past in terms of calling uh, directional turns in the market. And right now he's not so optimistic. So you might want to stick around and hear what Peter has to say. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Peter Grandich. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Brigus is also advancing its gold fields project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. Western Pacific is a gold exploration company focused on finding major world-class deposits in the western United States. Western's Ace in the Hole, a project called Mineral Gulch, lies along trend with the Carlin-style Long Canyon deposit, recently acquired by Frontier Development. Catalysts going forward will be from drill results. One drill campaign is underway at the South Lita Project in Nevada, with permitting underway to drill 33 holes at Mineral Gulch. Western Pacific trades on the Venture Exchange under the ticker WRP. 
Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Gold Fields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Dasha Capital is offering the world's first and only corporate stockpile of rare earth minerals, giving investors the ability to participate in the physical ownership of these critical elements without the associated mining and execution risk. Rare earth elements are used in many industries, from aerospace and automotive to high-tech and green tech. Dasha Capital is listed on the TSX.V in Toronto under the symbol DAC and on the OTCQX in the U.S. under symbol DCHAF. Please visit www.dashacapital.com to learn more. That's D-A-C-H-A-Capital.com. Solid and Gold is focused on the exploration and development of its wholly owned Showindo Gold Project in Peru. The company is currently undertaking the largest exploration program to date on the property and with this expects to continue increasing its current mineral resource. A preliminary assessment was completed last year highlighting a very positive and economical project and a bankable feasibility study is currently underway. Don't miss this great opportunity to embark on an emerging gold production story. Visit www.solidan.com to learn more. Richfield Ventures Corp. is a publicly traded junior mining company on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol RVC. Led by an experienced and dedicated team, Richfield is systematically drilling 25,000 meters of core in 2010 on its Blackwater Gold Project in central British Columbia, where the primary goal is to discover a world-class bulk tonnage gold deposit. With $5 million in treasury and 40 million shares fully diluted, Richfield and its shareholders are poised for a major discovery. Go to richfieldventures.com. CA for further information. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by voice america business network the bottom line in business welcome to the human race some kind of love and ride i'll be sliding down i'll be gliding down try not to try to you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to Taylor at miningstocks.com. That's the letter J, Taylor, at miningstocks.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me today Peter Grandich, a longtime friend. Oh, I guess going back a couple of decades now. Peter Grandich lives in New Jersey. I'm in New York City. And we've had an occasion to get together several times for, for conferences, smaller conferences that Peter's put on. Uh, Peter uh, has had uh, has done a lot of things for people less fortunate. Uh, he has a heart for the needy. Uh, and so Peter has done very well on Wall Street, and he's uh, quick to share uh, his wealth with other people, which is one thing I think that makes Peter stand out from a lot of the other people. But uh, in any event, Peter, welcome uh, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, most pleasure to be here, Jay, and I actually believe the first time we did a conference was 1989, if you can imagine that. <laughs> so it is going back a couple of decades. Yes, and, uh, it is. Uh, yeah, and, uh, you know, we've had some lean years and we've had some good years. Uh, 
I, I guess uh, I guess it's like a little bit like the weather in the Northeast. When you have some good weather and you have some hot and cold weather, you sort of get to uh, really appreciate the good times when they come. Well, Peter, I'd like to just start in by asking you some uh, uh, some questions about how you got into this business. You had a very unusual entry into the financial world. Um, you ended up being called a Wall Street whiz kid. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? How did you get into this business? Sure. Uh, growing up in the Bronx, didn't finish high school. Uh, was actually working as a warehouse manager. When I became extremely intrigued about the market, I took a small sum of money. I was newly married in 19, or 1980, and I turned it into a fair sum, only to lose it through literally what was then known as a penny stock broker. And so I actually started an investors club in 1983 while I was a warehouse manager and uh, was discovered by a guy that owned a small New York Stock Exchange member firm. He convinced me to become a broker, which I did in early 1984. And I was the world's worst tele, uh, telemarketer. Yeah. Uh, I called, you know, back then that was really the main way a young broker would start that book of business. And the first person that hung up on me, I was done for the day. So the gentleman I worked for at the time who wrote the gold newsletter back then, if you remember a guy named Bob Knapp, mm-hmm. he, uh, he convinced me to start a newsletter because he thought I was analytical. And mm-hmm. so the Grandage letter really started as an alternative sales tool to having to call people while I was a broker. And uh, by early 1987, I was only in the business less than three years. I was made head of investment strategy for New York Stock Exchange member firm. And it was then, while in that position, I forecast the crash. And then the day after the crash in the, you know, 1987, I said the market would go to a new high. And that really elevated me to a national level, allowed me to meet people such as yourself and others, start speaking at conferences, uh, you know, appearing on TV, and, and I guess the rest is history. Mm-hmm. Well, Peter, I can understand this, knowing you uh, personally as I do, uh, you know, salespeople have to be a little bit slippery sometimes. I mean, the 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 the, uh, the really successful ones, I guess, a lot of times are sort of, you know, they're going to couch their words, they're going to spin it a certain way to create a certain feeling of, you know, warm and fuzzy feeling to get you to buy the product. And you're not like that. You're really not like that. You are a person who tells it like it is. Uh, and and so the analytical side for sure um, is is part of what you do. But of course you are also though, ironically or maybe not, you are helping companies tell their story though. I mean this is um, uh, you know you help companies get their story out. So how do you reconcile the two? You have this personality, uh, this honesty, this integrity that that requires you to you know to tell people everything that could go wrong. And yet you are, um, you know, you you work for companies, you help to get their story out to people. How do you reconcile the two? Because you are, in a sense, a salesperson now. Absolutely. Well, you know, I, I would like to say that from the very first day I entered Wall Street, I was the guy you described, but I wasn't. In fact, I've penned a book called Confessions of a Wall Street Whiz Kid, and in it I talk about my career and all the things that happened, including the fact that I was once a legend in my own mind, God was, uh, money was my God at that time, and I didn't do everything in the best interest for my clients at that time, which is, unfortunately, I believe, atypical what happens in the financial service industry. So I wasn't always that way, but uh, through various things that happened in my life and in my spiritual life, I think I've evolved to that. And then you're right, uh, to literally be lack of a better word, uh, and I've been called a lot worse in these emails you get occasionally, a mouthpiece for uh, public companies, mostly in the junior resource area. The assumption by some is, well, he he can't tell the truth. He always has to you know, make them into the best possible case. He's a tout. He's a this and he's that. Mm-hmm. And I really changed that, at least in the way it used to be done, at least for my sake, and I've been, I think, as objective as one could be, given everything that that involves. And because of that, but it took years of people following you, I actually believe people look at it as a good housekeeping seal now that the vast majority of people who've read my work and know what I do will say <laughs> the guy is always open. He never hides the fact of anything that may be a conflict of interest at all. In fact, mm-hmm. I've had people tell me, my disclaimer is the most, the largest and the most informative. And I've had public companies discharge me, Jay, 
when I've not spoken in the best light about them. Mm-hmm. And I've also need to tell people that for every company I'm engaged by, I turn down about nine, even though they do want to compensate. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I appreciate your compliment, and I have to tell you this, and I don't think that people want to hear a, 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 a kiss-tushy show, but you know, one of the reasons I've been an admirer of yours for years and why I've always associated you in my personal endeavors, charity drives and others, is because I always felt you were a unique voice in a market where there weren't real objectiveness, and that's the junior resource market. And I think, if I may just say, uh, because I think it's overdue and somebody should say this publicly about you, I think you have been the most honest, objective, and obviously longest-lasting guy in our business, and that's one of the reasons why I would always have, if you ask me, have time for you, where others I may not. That's very very kind of you, Peter. I, I think we all uh, realize that we uh, we know what's right. We we set out to do it. We don't always get there, but uh, our heart is in the right place. I, I guess well, I, I think it was fair a, to say that you and I have both made it known publicly that we've lost enough money over time to be an expert on how to lose as well as how to win. Uh, you do listen to, unfortunately, some of our peers in our business, and you would think they never lose in a business where failure is the norm. You know, we just both came back from this Vancouver show, and I, I don't MC in the way that I used to, but I still sit in and hear talks. And I hear some of these speakers, and you would think they never lost a dime based on that mm-hmm. talk or ever made a wrong forecast. And we mm-hmm. both know that we've made enough to last more than a lifetime. Well, that's that's for sure, and and everyone has. That's um, in this business for any length of time. I, I do look at people like Richard Russell, who... Uh, who you know is in his 80s, and he he continues to write a daily newsletter. Well, almost every day, anyway. But he, the people that have been around this market, uh, at least some people have been around this market and survive a long time, uh, are humbled by it. They realize that their you know their arrogance has to be. Uh, I, I suppose in the short run, you you, you know your arrogance may serve uh, serve well. You uh, you create this aura of being invincible, but <clears throat> but you and I know that that's not the case. Well. Anyway, throughout your career, and especially the last several years, um, you've talked a lot more about spiritual beliefs and, and battles with depression that you've had, Peter. And I know you personally uh, um, know, know that this is true, but would you mind sharing a little bit of that with our oh, listeners? Absolutely. Like I said earlier, I believe I was once a legend in my own mind. Uh, but in the mid-1990s, before age 40, I reached what at least at that time I thought was the American dream. I had wealth. Uh, at that point, basically, what CDs used to pay, I could have retired and, and lived off the income. Uh, but instead, I went out and bought a big, huge estate home, five race horses, two race cars, took up a terrible male addiction called golf. And I literally thought I would golf and live a life of Riley for the rest of my life. And uh, that would turn out not to be the case. The, the Brie X, although I wasn't involved in it, hit our junior resource market, gold started the tank. And I found myself at the end of the 90s uh, suffering the first of three horrific panic attacks. Now, the mm-hmm. first one, we didn't even know. We thought it was a heart attack. Mm-hmm. So I was actually pleased to learn it wasn't a heart attack, but I was told that somehow anxiety caused it. Mm-hmm. But then I would be hit with two more, and it would be the first of two serious battles that I've had with depression. And the, 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 the illness about depression, as soon as you hear that, a lot of people think there's a weakness. Well, somebody's mm-hmm. depressed. It's mm-hmm. weakness versus if you hear they had cancer or they broke an arm or something. Mm-hmm. Somehow that is uh, more more understandable. Well, depression is, is an illness. Uh, in my particular case, it's been documented. It's actually a medical illness. I have mm-hmm. certain chemicals that uh, can and, and, and get triggered, believe it or not, more discovery now by certain viruses when a virus hits. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it, is, it is the most horrific uh, illness, in my opinion, because there's, there's there's an understanding to know that you're suffering it, but an inability to fix yourself, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. only uh, through that, and 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 really coming in my view, and I don't try to say that everybody has to have my view, but for me, my personal relationship with Jesus Christ was truly a lifesaver, mm-hmm. and uh, it finally allowed me to understand, to begin to understand. Uh, what life is truly about. And so the battles with depression, which many times you come to a relationship with who you believe is God, 
not because things have been great and you're so happy and everything's going, but because you've gone through a very serious trial or, or tragedies hitting all. Mm -hmm. And really, at that point in time, people only have two choices. You can become bitter and angry and blame God and others, or you can recognize that you really have no real lasting strength on your own, mm -hmm. and your strength only comes from who you believe, as I do, the Almighty God who created everything good in the universe. And for that, I believe I've had these blessings and continue to be blessed in my marriage, uh, in my friendship, in my business. Uh, you know, I have a couple businesses. I'm involved with sports and athletes. I do Christian ministry. I've lived dreams that only sport fans could ever imagine, and all from a person who's truly a sinner. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we're all sinners. A lot of people don't like to admit that. And uh, the greatness is, and I'll just close this segment with is, is that uh, I believe I had a God who paid the ultimate price for my sins, and, and because of that, and because he allows me to seek forgiveness, I need to have learned to forgive others. And I have to tell you, if you're going to be in the junior resource business, <laughs> you better learn about forgiveness, because there's a lot of heartache in it. Yeah. Well, there's no doubt about that, Peter, and the ability to forgive is is cleansing and healing and uh uh, if you can't, if you have to carry that bitterness with you, uh, it's oh, it's a terrible thing I used to, Jay. You know, <clears throat> it, it turned my stomach up. Uh, I sought revenge. I plotted to how to get back at people that I mm -hmm. thought that hurt me. And now mm -hmm. I see it. And the, the difference is that if somebody said to me, well, Peter, what was the difference? What do you need to get over that? Because I know a lot of people suffer this. You have to start to accept an understanding instead of being mad, looking at that person or thinking, going there, but the grace of God go I. Mm -hmm. How great God has showed me that and not to be like that. And, mm -hmm. and that's a gift. And when you get to that point, and only when you get to that point, can you really start to enjoy the things God has given in this, earth, in this world. Well, there's no doubt about it. The, the bitterness that you carry with you, if you carry it with you, it's self-destructive. And, uh, and I think also, Peter, the notion that uh, of understanding yourself and who you are, uh, you know, realizing that you were a legend only in your own mind and not, not necessarily in reality. Although, let's not sell your, your gifts and your talents short with respect to the market, and we're going to get to some of your views on the market and, and some of your calls. But I think probably the difference might be, Peter, between you and some others who have had some success is that you might attribute that success to your maker rather than to yourself. Oh, yeah, and it wasn't that at first, but it's certainly in the last 10 years or longer I've done that now. And I think because I've done that, and my encouragement to others would be is, is why the blessings can become maximum. That, that doesn't mean that we all simply say we love God, we sit there and, and oodles of money and flow from heaven and all. <laughs> yeah. Although if you watch CNBC TV, you would think that. <laughs> but the bottom line is there, you're, you're more able to handle what's ever happening in your life, and mm -hmm. that's been the difference. A different perspective on life, why you're here, what your purpose is, um, and what happens when this is over, too, I, I guess. Yeah, and, and, and to tie it into our industry and maybe to segue into something is we're in a business where failure is the norm. Despite all the good uh, desires by good people, and there are a lot of good people. There's bad people, but there's a lot of good people. Mm -hmm. Not everybody's going to find and develop a mind. Mm -hmm. And I think part of being successful in this is, is being candid about that to people and get them to recognize that, a, the word speculation is really a word that was re Wall Street created so they didn't have to say the word gambling. Mm -hmm. Gambling and speculating are both the same thing. Yeah. And when you gamble, you've got to be prepared to lose part of all your capital. And if you are, and you truly are fiscally and mentally prepared for that, then there's a lot of opportunity in our business. But if you're not, you're in the wrong business. Mm -hmm. For sure. No doubt about that. Um Peter, I want to get on to your forecast of the market and uh, where you think we're going. There's tons and tons of questions to ask you about that. But there's another, uh, sort of getting back to the spiritual issue again, uh, you've recently wrote about our public storage facilities and how that epitomizes the state of America. Can you just talk about that? For yeah, I, I tried. I've been a simple man, I guess, because I was not educated. I never developed a big vocabulary, <laughs> uh, and I've tried to simplify things. Uh, my dad, he grew up in Hell's Kitchen, which is the west side of mm -hmm. lower Manhattan, mm -hmm. and he was in a maybe a 500 or 600 square foot apartment, coal mm -hmm. burnings. Uh, and when I was king of the hill, 
I lived in a major estate on five acres, and I never met my grandfathers. They had been both passed away before I was born. So I always imagined that they would come back one day, and after raising my father in such a place, they would walk through this five-acre place that I have where I could take my sandwich, the bottom of the 300-foot driveway, and hit it and not even hit my house. And he would look at this, and just 50 years ago, no one had 5,000-square-foot homes except the Rockefellers. Mm-hmm. So he would inquire, why would I have such a place? And all my neighbors, they have the same size homes and all. And I would give him all the reasons that we give today and so forth. He may or may not accept it, but then we would take a walk on a major road, and this is any major road in America. And as we were walking, the grandfather turned to me and said, Grandson, what is that? And he would point to a public storage facility. And I explained to him that people like me, pay that man who owns that to keep stuff in there that we can't keep back at our 5,000-square-foot home. <laughs> and he would look at us and probably go back to Grandma and say, we lost it between our son and grandson because our grandparents didn't need public storage, Jay, because uh-huh. they didn't have all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And all this stuff epitomizes where America has gone. We bought into a lie that was created purposely, not on purposely, or somewhere in between, between Wall Street and Madison Avenue, that more money equals more happiness. Mm-hmm. That the guy that owns a bus company will always be happier than a guy driving a bus for mm-hmm. him, which mm-hmm. in real life is not true. So mm-hmm. I try to make and point out that public storage and the growth of it, and you really can't drive on any major road and not see one and then another one in a couple of miles and all, mm-hmm. is that America's root of its problem, besides losing its spiritual compass, lost it in thinking more stuff would equal more happiness. Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly is the uh, it certainly is what we are bombarded with uh, with all the commercials that keep coming at us. Uh, the notion of you know fancy cars and pretty girls that go along with it, I guess, is is all part of the advertising, the big lie, in essence. And I would I would agree with you, Peter, that probably a lot of times, the people that have more are less happy because they're more worried about keeping it. And uh, many many times, perhaps, the way they obtained that wealth was maybe in a somewhat illicit manner that has them looking over their shoulders all the time, wondering if they're going to get caught or if, if something else. And so, I, I, you know, definitely simple is better in many ways. I know that that's true, and yet at the same time we're in a society that keeps teaching us and, and keeps tempting us to go uh, to go for the materialism. I, um, I guess we want to get into some of your market uh, strategies, your ideas here. Uh, let's see, recently... Um, but I think before we do that, let me ask you one more thing, more on a philosophical plane, Peter, and then we're going to uh, take a commercial break. But recently you stated that you thought that America is beyond the point of no return. I'd like to get your ideas on that. So maybe you can start to talk about that, and then maybe we can segue into the market. But right. go ahead. What, what do you mean by that? Well, uh, part of what we just discussed about America, for I don't know exactly how long. I'm sure if we, doc- we looked into it, we can document it. But America has spent and developed so much debt that there's no economic formula, any business formula or anything that's been taught, that we can look at it and somehow service it and expect to pay it off. In other words, if we would just take the United States as a business for a moment and we looked at its balance sheet and we looked at its all its obligations, first let's understand that we have somewheres now in the order of 19 to 21 trillion of actual debt. I mean, it's borrowed. Mm-hmm. It's a piece of paper. Uncle Sam has said it's going to pay it. But then some estimates as high as 72 trillion or more of obligations or promises to pay, and that's in the benefit side, the Social Security and Medicare. Now, if we were a corporation, that unfunded liability—that's what's known as an unfunded liability be required to be carried on our books. Mm -hmm. The government isn't required to carry on its books. But Mm -hmm. if it was, and if it was a business, any accountant would tell you that the company is bankrupt. It's unsolvable. It can't, we can't produce after, after every American pays for its home and its food and all the necessities, we can't earn enough money to pay in taxes to the government to pay down not only the interest that's owed, but the principal. That's that's just the fact that no one on the don't worry, be happy, CNBC type of mode wants to talk about, but it's the reality of it. People, as we know, like Walter Williams and others have mm-hmm. expressed this in very simple terms. And, mm-hmm. and so what I try to tell people is, listen, 
We just can't do it. So the inevitable is going to happen. Now, I don't know the day, Jay. You know, Jay, it may even be after you and I are are called away from this earth, Mm -hmm. or it may be next week. Mm -hmm. But there's going to come a a day of reckoning Mm -hmm. when the, the recognition of this, that we cannot service it, that either the debt has to be reneged on, renegotiate or monetize, of mm-hmm. which I think all three are already underway. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like that pilot that took the fuel and now realizes that if it turns around now, no matter how hard it tries, it's not going to make it back to the base. And that's where America is right now. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and while this is happening, the worst of all decisions was to actually create more debt. No credit crisis in man's history, Jay, has ever been solved by issuing more credit. Mm-hmm. But that's exactly what we've done. So I don't know what day it is, Jay, and, and maybe you and I and our listeners will be around to say, oh, here it is, the day has come. But there's a day of reckoning coming, mm-hmm. certainly on the fiscal side of things. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly the timing is, is an issue that's very, very difficult to figure out, uh, Peter. Nobody has that kind of wisdom to know for sure when it's going to happen, um, you know, when that day of reckoning will come, when the, when the world will realize that the debt cannot be repaid. It's interesting. You mentioned a number, uh, I think, of $65 trillion or something in that neighborhood. Uh, we had Lawrence Kotlikoff on this show. He's a professor of economics at Boston University, was, a, uh, was uh, an advisor to President Clinton, and, <clears throat> and um, I think he's involved at the Peterson Institute. But in any event... His numbers were somewhat higher. He said a present value of all the obligations of the United States, uh, you know, uh, the, the health care, uh, Social Security, et cetera, and probably other things as well, it comes out to something like $202 trillion. And he, he has gone on some of the major networks and talked about that, and that's why I decided to get him on this show. But whatever the number is, it is a number that's enormously large, and I think you're, you talked about Walter Williams, who's also been on this or John Williams has been on this show, and John has uh, talked about uh, the debt being so large that uh, even if we tax people at 100 percent of their income, it wouldn't be sufficient. So clearly, you know, you don't need to be uh, you don't need to be more than a warehouse uh, operator, I suppose, to sort of comprehend that we're in trouble. And yet, I like to think sometimes, Peter, that people with PhDs in economics behind their behind their names are actually disadvantaged in understanding. Sort of the basic common sense stuff that we're re, that we're that we're talking about. I mean, as you just said, never in history has uh, a debt problem been solved by creating more debt, and yet that's exactly what we're doing. And we have a, a Dr. Bernanke who is uh, who is running our our, monetar, our monetary policy. Uh, Peter, I think this is a good place. We we'll take a uh, commercial break right now. I want to come back and pick up on this debt issue, and then perhaps the bond markets, and then get into. Uh, the equity markets and the gold and silver markets and, and some of those other markets that, that we're very focused on on this show. So I'm going to ask you to hold on if you can stay with me a little longer, Peter. Absolutely, Jay. Okay, we'll be right back, folks. Uh, don't go away. We'll be right back with Peter Grandage after this commercial break. Don't go away. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer long by 20-kilometer wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Great Panther Silver is a profitable primary silver producer trading on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol GPR. GPR operates two 100% owned mines in Mexico, has a solid track record of increasing production, and continues to add resources and reserves. GPR has developed an organic growth strategy that will see production increase by more than 65% over the next two years. Great Panther Silver is also generating excitement at its new discovery in Guanajuato and expanding its drill program. Look for GPR on the TSX. Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. 
Brigus is also advancing its Goldfields project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD. Crocodile Gold Corp. is a new gold producer with Bite. Our operating gold mines are in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold plans to produce 100,000 ounces of gold in 2010, increasing to 200,000 ounces of gold in 2011. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometers. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let the snappy opportunity pass by the business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network 